Hi, everyone. Thank you for coming tonight. I'm Greg Sesek from the Programs Department of the Pratt Library. This program is one of our programs from Writers Live. We have over 100 programs each year at the Pratt featuring both fiction and non-fiction writers, poets. Uh, Compass is our library newsletter that comes uh, out uh, every two months. Uh, if you haven't picked up or received your copy of the fall schedule, do so on the way out. You can also sign up if you'd like to receive this, uh, in either in the mail or delivered to your email. Uh, we have lots of great programs coming in the fall, made possible by the generous donations of our donors. Uh, very glad to have Sujata Massey uh, tonight, Alison the Auto. Um, I would ask them to please join me. <laughs> Sujata was born in England to parents from India and Germany and grew up mostly in St. Paul, Minnesota. She is a graduate of Johns Hopkins University and came to be known in Baltimore as a reporter for the Evening Sun. After leaving the newspaper, she moved to Japan, where she studied Japanese, taught English, and began writing her first novel, The Salaryman's Wife. She has won Agatha Award and been nominated for the Edgar, Anthony, and Mary Higgins Clark Awards. Her newest novel, The Sleeping Dictionary, is the first in a series of historical suspense novels featuring Bengali women who each play a role in making modern India. Sujata's books have been published in more than 18 countries. Formerly a Baltimore resident, currently she is based near Washington, D.C., but to us, she will always be a Baltimore author. We've adopted you. Technically, it's Baltimore. <laughs> Baltimore is near Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> Allison Liotta was a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C., where she specialized in sex crimes, domestic violence, and crimes against children. This is the career of, of your protagonist, Anna Curtis. Uh, your new book, Speak of the Devil, is the third Anna Curtis novel. Allison has appeared on CNN, PBS, NewsHour, and is a weekly contributor to the Huffington Post, where she reality checks TV crime dramas, which I'm fascinated <laughs> by. I'd like to start with tell, telling us a little bit about which ones are really on the mark. <laughs> <laughs> on the mark. Well, that's harder. I think The Wire was the most on the mark. And I, I've heard even, you know, they were in the first season looking at the drug trade in Baltimore and that the thugs on the street corners were watching it to see how the police were investigating them to find the real-life details. That's how real they were. Uh. One of the worst is CSI. And you've all heard probably of the CSI effect, where everybody comes to court, especially jurors, thinking that we're going to have this magic crime-solving technology because they've seen it on CSI. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the hardest part of being a prosecutor is getting <laughs> expectations in line with reality. Mm -hmm. So it's fun. Sometimes I watch these shows. I used to just want to throw popcorn or slippers at the TV. <laughs> this is much more constructive. The, the only challenge really is keeping it short. Sure. <laughs> yeah. You worked for 12 years as a prosecutor in Washington. Tell us about your work. Well, I specialize in sex crimes and domestic violence. Mm -hmm. um, it was sad work, heartbreaking work, but also sometimes very rewarding. And 
I, I mean, I really do think that in America there are very few legal jobs that are as rewarding as putting a sexual predator in jail. So I loved it. Uh, I thought about it all the time. I never could leave it at the office, and I think that's why I started writing initially. Mm-hmm. I think it was deeper, cheaper than therapy for me. Mm-hmm. So. Your novel deals with a real gang, the MS-13. Right. What, is, what does that mean, and who are they? <laughs> who here has heard of MS-13? Yes, so <laughs> I see uh, one of my friends, Judge Stephanie Gallagher, who has probably uh, presided over some of those cases. Um, and so it's a, it's a real gang. They started off as a small clique in L.A. They've spread virally. It's now estimated they have 50,000 members worldwide. Um, they're incredibly brutal and misogynistic, and what they do is target kids in middle school get them to join the gang through these very brutal initiation practices, which I won't describe here, but um, you can read about in the book. Once the kids are in the gang, they're in for life. I think they don't realize what for life means at 13, uh, but they're in for life. And, and I, sometimes what you see is the struggle of these 22-year-old guys who've been in the gang for a long time. By 22, you're an old man in MS-13 who want to leave the gang, who want to go do something else, be a mechanic or what have you. And they can't. You, there's no leaving the gang. Mm-hmm. There's this three-dot tattoo. There's three places MS-13 can lead, lead you to, jail, the morgue, or the hospital. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of sad to see when mm-hmm. they've reached that point. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll cooperate against other gang members, but um, that's, mm-hmm. that's the, kind of the only way out, and, and they're kind of marked for life then. Mm-hmm. How does someone uh, get... Well, we, we said, if you want to hear about the initiation, read the book. But how does someone get about getting into a gang? How does, how does that happen to how does that happen to someone? Uh, well, I think for both boys and girls, they're looking for a sense of family that they don't have, especially these 13, 14-year-old kids don't have a place, and they come very often from poor families, although not always. And they're just looking for a group that they can call home, that, that like, will be their friends, that will be their shoulder. And it's very tempting. It's, it's very glamorous. It seems very glamorous. There's money, there's drugs, there's sex, there's all these things that uh, you know, are the lure that, that every young teenager wants. And so the, the gang purposely targets these young kids because they're easy to control, they're easy to manipulate, they don't have a really good judgment system in place. They get them in and then, and then they're in mm-hmm. for life. They usually are brought in by friends. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Sujata, your new book, The Sleeping Dictionary, is set in uh, 1930s, Calcutta, India. Take us to Calcutta in the 1930s. Well, I, I would love to be there. <laughs> um, there's still quite a few buildings around in the city that are from that period. And, and by 1930, the British had come to India in the 1600s and slowly colonized it. And in the 19th century, they decided that they would make um, Calcutta the capital because there was so much commerce going on. There were all kinds of... There was rice coming in from the countryside. They were dyeing fabrics with indigo. There was you know, spice trade coming in from other parts of the country and leaving through Calcutta. So they built these beautiful buildings that where the, the commerce was taking place and also where the, the seat of government was. And in fact, there's a building still there today called the Writer's Building 
and the people who made policy were all called writers. They weren't, you know, fiction writers. They were really boring <laughs> administrators. And that is one of the places where my character tries to get a job. Um, in those days, they called for Calcutta for a long time the city of palaces because there were so many of these spectacular buildings. Of course, they were more concentrated in what was called the white town, and that was where the white people lived. It was very simple. There was also a black town, and you can probably guess who lived there. And there was, it was a lot more um, lively. There was a lot more economic diversity in the black town. And the white town was washed clean every morning before 6 o'clock. People would come, and they would come with hoses, and they would wash the streets because it had to be immaculate. So it was a very glamorous city, but it was a city that was divided between haves and have-nots. And I write about a young woman who arrives at that city to achieve her dreams. You know, she came from a very poor background, but she's achieved literacy. And she thinks that if you can, you know, it's like New York, New York, you can make it anywhere if you can make it there. Mm-hmm. And that, that is her dream. And, but for her, the only ticket to making money is going into that white town and seeing if there's something for her there. Mm-hmm. There's an idea in the West, certainly a great romanticism about the British Raj, that Raj, the sun never sets on the British Empire at mm-hmm. one time. But what were the realities for Indians during this period? Yeah. I'm, I realize I'm talking mm-hmm. about a long time, so maybe more yeah, specifically. Yeah, it is. Well, it's, it was a, you know, Alison writes a little bit about prostitution in her book, and in a way, if you look at that whole period, you could almost see it as the country suffering from a, a a prostitution situation. When the British came in in the 1600s, they were very canny and they realized that they needed to make, they weren't going to succeed by, they couldn't just do land grabs, like they could see this fertile land and all this possibility for export, but they knew they had to get along with the rulers. So uh, one of the first things they did was they got themselves girlfriends who lived with them and taught them the manners of the country and they taught them the language of the country. And then they had the confidence to go out and actually start dealing with um, people uh, and asking them for the permission to set up factories and so on. And one of the things that um, I learned in the process of doing this book that I hadn't known when I started was that my ancestral family on my grandmother, my father's grandmother's side, were a landowning family called the, the Roy Chowderies. And they actually owned a lot of land in Bengal, and they actually owned three villages which they gave to the East India Company that became Calcutta. And they did it for no money. And they, and you know, I've talked about it with my dad, and like, why would they do that? And we've looked all through the family history and tried to... Um, make sense of it. And I think what happened is that a lot of favors, they were, our family needed to be, um, it was advantageous for them to be supported by the, by the royalty, which was at that time it was the Mughal court. And there was, a, there was a Muslim governor and these are Hindu Brahmins and they wanted to get along. And I believe that they were probably pressured by the court to do hmm. it. But, it, you know, what happened is that they, you know, gave the land, it became the city, and that's how this kind of colonialism spread. 
And for people that were wealthy, it was not a hardship because they were, they were getting cash. You know, they would, they would do things like take in a rice harvest. I write about a, um, a landowner who, you know, he demands, you know, that all these people farm his land, and he's actually not that mean to them, and they feel like they've got work, but what he does then is he takes the rice and he gives most of the rice to Britain. He gets some money for his rice. Um, the people, some people get paid in rice. Sometimes they get paid in a little bit of money, but they're very, very dependent on the landowner. And imagine this going on all over the country in all kinds of industries, and that's basically what colonialism was. On the plus side, um, the colonials, after a point, began to set up schools because they realized that they wanted to have um, Indians working for them, doing you know more than agricultural. They wanted them working in offices. They needed them to be police. They needed all kinds of things. So the schools were set up, and that was a really good thing because eventually... The more education you have, the more tools you have, the more you know that something is wrong and something is unfair. And in the end, it was the Indians in the schools who had, who had gone to university who got together and started an independence movement and began to uh, fight for freedom. Thank you. Tell us about Anna Curtis and her work. Uh, the novel starts uh, with the murder uh, Anna, uh, and, and you have the same work. Um, I wanted to um, hear about Anna. Okay. <laughs> well, it might not surprise you to hear that Anna is, in fact, a sex crimes prosecutor in Washington, <laughs> D.C., the job that I held. Um, and she, so she shares that similarity with me, and I end up spending a lot of time protesting that it's not me. <laughs> it's not me. In fact, the first book that I wrote, Law of Attraction, the cover were, were the, was this woman running across the street with these legs, and everybody thought the, they were my legs. <laughs> I, had to, I had to explain to people, even like my dad thought those were my legs. Um, that note, like James Patterson doesn't have his legs running across the right. right? and they weren't mine either. Stock so, cover art. Yes, that's right. Stock cover art was not a concept that dad knew. Um, so uh, at first, when I first started writing, I thought Anna was going to have a a more interesting background than me, but uh, she'd be similar to me in that she'd come from a happy, big family. I thought she'd come from a big Sicilian family, actually, like my husband's family, and, and cook lots of great stuff, and it'd be this big, happy family. And th then I realized um, that wasn't the right character for this book. I thought this character should be able to relate to her victims and witnesses on a more personal level. And so she did not become Anna Randazzo, as I originally intended, but she became Anna Curtis, who has a, a rather dark and troubled background, which, again, my poor dad has to contend with because he's a very nice man. <laughs> he was actually a federal prosecutor, too, which is part of what inspired me to go into this work. But now he was worried that everybody would think he was that ter terrible, terrible dad that Anna had. So he's not. He's a nice guy. Anna, so Anna um, takes on these cases. She fights domestic violence and sex crimes in Washington, D.C. In Law of Attraction, it's about a domestic violence homicide in um, discretion. So with Law of Attraction, I thought I'd written one book. Simon and Schuster thought it was the beginning of a series. Uh, so I gave her a happy ending and then had to snatch it away from her oh. and <laughs> keep her going, throw some more troubles in her path. Um, in discretion, uh, it's about the escort industry and prostitution and actually starts with an escort being pushed from the top floor of Congress, of course. What else would be happening to her? And um, 
Speak of the Devil is about the gang MS-13. So in each one of the books, she's kind of trying to deal with this force of, of darkness and trying to right the wrongs um, in the world uh, that, that come across mm-hmm. her desk. Simon & Schuster has um, signed a deal with you for two more Two yeah. more books, Two which more I understand you're working on, four and five. I am, yes. Right. I, my husband is in right there, Michael. He, mm-hmm. uh, we, we just went over an outline. I have this 17-page outline. I'm an outliner. What about you, Sujata? Do you outline well, or do you... To sell a book, I outline. Because <laughs> <laughs> they sort of want to know what you're doing. I was I outlining today for four hours straight. Oh, I couldn't stop doing it. You were more productive than I was. No, well, I mean, I, I had a really good work day at, at the library, ah. I have to say. Nice, this one that you know. No, no, I work at the Hopkins Library a lot because that's close to my home, but I, I really do, I can get lost doing that. But yeah, outlining is a sort of a necessary evil for me, but I don't keep referring to it, but it's, it's nice to have. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a necessary, not evil for me, but uh, but it's necessary. And then I usually do it and then realize it's all wrong. Mike points out how it's all wrong. <laughs> Thanks, sweetie. And then we do it over again, and then I start writing it, and then I realize that the second draft was also all wrong. So then I, it, it goes from there. But do you find when you're writing in the library that people recognize you and they come up and want to talk to you? No, but I got very offended at the Hopkins Library today because a student wouldn't, like, she was holding the door for me and wouldn't, like, she she would not let me come out of the bathroom without holding the door, and that made me feel really old. <laughs> it made me feel like I was the oldest person in the library, which I, I think I often am. <laughs> Allison, in your uh, previous novel, The Law of Attraction, that you just mentioned, um, uh, it says that 80% of domestic violence cases, in 80% of domestic violence cases, the victim gets back together with the abuser and wants to drop all charges. Right. Talk about this, especially in your in your life and being a prosecutor. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, I learned pretty much everything I knew about domestic violence prosecuting from Cassie Motz, who's here, who works for the, for the governor now. Um, it was, that was the hardest part and maybe one of the most surprising parts of the, of the whole thing for me is that you, I would have this interaction over and over again. And at first, I was surprised by it where I would meet someone who had been abused, usually a she who had been abused by her boyfriend, and you meet her the day of, and she'd be bloody and crying, and she would say, that's it, he's going to jail, he'll never do this again, I never want my kids to see this happen again. And I would look at his rap sheet, and I would see that He'd been arrested for this a bunch of times for hitting her, the same woman, but never convicted. And I would wonder, why not? But we're going to get him this time, right? We've got photos. We've got the victim. This is going to be an easy open and shut case. And then 80% of the time, you would get to court, and very often she would be in the back of the courtroom with him with his arm around her. And 80% of the time, she would come up to me and have a conversation that went like this. Ms. Leota, I'm sorry, but I love him. He's the father of my children, and I don't want to be the one to send him to jail. Please drop the charges against him. And as a very young prosecutor, I had to weigh the power of her choice against the likelihood that he would kill her, that the next time that we saw her in the system, it would be her autopsy photos, and decide whether or not to bring that case, despite her desire to drop charges, which we do, which the U.S. Attorney's Office does in domestic violence cases. And that is at the heart of law of attraction, that fear... And, and it happens, and, and, and what flows from that. Absolutely. Thank you. Sundrata, your new book is um, going in a new direction, 
for you. Uh, this, of course, is set in India, as we talked about. Um, I love French culture, French food, French philosophy, and I knew at one point that if I really wanted to understand it, I'd have to learn the language, which was something that I put off since high school. So I did it, and I, I think that it really has helped my understanding when I make French meals and, and, and think about things. Um, you have learned Hindi, I understand. Well, when I say, say learned, it's, it's oh, so many caveats to that. My Japanese is much, much better than um, Hindi. I, studied, I started studying Hindi while I was writing this book, while I was getting ready to write the book, because I agree. I feel like there's something about knowing a language, and I, I specifically am a fiend for learning idioms and, and similes and proverbs, because if I'm going to have characters that are... are you know, my book is obviously in English. If I have a character that is speaking English, but I want you to know they're Indian... I want to be able to transmit that without using stereotypes like accents and pigeon, dropped articles. Those are the mm-hmm. things that you usually see when it, it's the writing screams foreigner. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to do that. And I thought that if I, I've learned things mm-hmm. like um, you know, little proverbs, like the, only the, the thief knows this or that, and you know, I've, I've got all kinds of them in there. Mm-hmm. So that was a reason that I worked on it. But because I only did it for a year, and I did it in a classroom, and I didn't live in India, I, I never was able to achieve fluency. I have, no cl- I have no chance of achieving fluency. The best I can do is if someone is speaking Hindi to me, I can think about what they said and try to like pick out what words I remember... And then I kind of maybe know what's going on. And then I can, and I can have some little stock phrases. But I don't have a lot of hopes for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that, you know, when, as I'm in India, when I go back, I'm able to work it a little bit more, mm-hmm. at least. But I'm very, very shy to speak. So well, don't, don't make me. <laughs> not, well, don't feel bad. My French isn't much better. If you if you you know write it down and hand it to me, I have time to process. Yeah, I have to process. I can write the answer back or speak the answer back in you English. Know what? It's so. all about processing speed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Your new series uh, features Bengali women who mm-hmm. each play a role in the making of modern India. Um, tell us about the voice of women uh, in the. Indian struggle for independence. Mm-hmm. Were there women who had who had a voice and an influence? Yeah, there were certainly quite a lot of women involved, even down to the high school level. Um, so many people wanted change, and a lot of families talked about it. And the, you know, there were groups of students getting together. There were groups of much older freedom fighters who influenced the students. And you have to know that at the same time this was all going on, the British had them characterized as terrorists. I mean, they would always refer to them as terrorists, just as we refer to people today. So that was interesting in the research. And um, girls played roles doing things um, ranging from extremes, such as assassinating a governor of the state of Bengal, um, which, I mean... I don't endorse that, <laughs> but that technically fell into the freedom fighting category, and she was caught and she was in prison for a while. But the government felt that she could not um, 
they could not execute her because she was a female, and that would cause too much unrest. So um, the freedom fighters realized that women could be used very well in the struggle because they were less likely to be watched or executed. And it was more often than not, the, the women in the movement were doing things like um, raising funds or participating in protests and for which they could and were arrested um, for those things. There weren't, they also carried arms from one place to another. So there was a whole range of activities, and they were really multiple movements, you know, just like as you see now with people that have um, political causes, um, there are just different ways of doing it. There was Mahatma Gandhi's passive resistance, but there was also the movement of a man called Subhas Chandra Bose who advocated an armed resistance if necessary. Um, so, and I write quite a bit about that latter movement because that really started in Bengal, which is my family's home state and the place where I set the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about Kamala. Uh, did I say her name? Um, we say Kamala. Kamala. It's like all, e- it's all evenly um, pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a young woman that we have nothing in common <laughs> except for our love of books. And she likes a lot of the same books that I do, even though it's, she's born in 1920. Um, she, uh, Kamala starts out as a, as a peasant girl in rural, in rural West Bengal. And through a series of events, she's orphaned and has to make her way through um, this British Raj India. And that sort of is the setup for the book. And the book is divided within it. It's four different books talking about the different places she is and how she grows during each period. And so she begins illiterate, but she becomes a passionate reader and becomes someone who um, is also very good at understanding the British through the school system, through working in a railway town. She really understands the differences in the way that British men and women operate, and she's able to use it to her advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is um, whether she will ever be able to reconcile her past, her secret past, with you know this sort of accomplished woman of letters that people see, mm-hmm. and whether she also has it in her heart to look at people as more than just a nationality and see that there may be some there may be some good people and bad people in both camps mm-hmm. absolutely thank you Allison in your career as an author you've also become an advocate for women giving voice uh, to victims um, I'd like to spend uh, the next part of the program having the two of you talk about women writing about women Okay, well, you, you know, it's interesting you talking about the women in uh, 1920s India because I've, I've been kind of fascinated by the pink sari movement in India. Has anyone heard of this? There have been all these incredibly uh, brutal incidents of violence against women in India recently on, on the bus, and a death sentence was recently pronounced for that. Um, and there's been this uprising of women who wear these hot pink saris who are protesting the government, so I... Uh, one of these days I'd like to hear what, what you think about that. But yes, I, I think particularly um, in the criminal justice system where we deal with sex crimes and domestic violence, it's often called the pink collar unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office because we're both dealing with crimes that often affect 
ch uh, women uh, disproportionately, and it's often handled by prosecutors who tend to be women. women. Female prosecutors tend to be drawn to the sex crimes and domestic violence unit in greater proportions than men. So um, in, in both of those ways, you have this kind of female-centric universe of both the victims and the government officials coming to their aid are tend to disproportionately be women. Mm -hmm. So um, so it's, I think, an interesting dynamic and interesting mm -hmm. to write about mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and I, I also think that for a long time in America, we, women took a back seat. We kind of lived in the shadows. We lived in our homes, and we took care of the kids, and we, we took care of the bedrooms and the kitchens and those sorts of things. And w just in the last couple of generations, we've come out into the workplace. Similarly, the crimes of sexual assault and domestic violence are crimes that typically take place in the shadows and that are very, very underreported. We're starting to see more reports now, but it's always been a crime that has taken place behind closed doors. Uh, up until maybe 20 or 30 years ago, uh, a husband would hit his wife and the wife would call the police and they would go and say, all right, everybody cool down and, and we're leaving. And that's it. That's all that would happen. And that's changing. I think there are very optimistic things happening. There are mandatory arrest laws now. The police, if they are on the scene of a crime and they see a probable cause that a domestic violence incident has occurred, they must make an arrest. It's a mandatory arrest. So we're moving, I think, in the right direction. But I, I think it's very much a, a matter of women coming out from their traditional places in the kitchen and uh, the, the law enforcement and our society taking seriously these crimes that typically uh, target them. You know, last week one of my Facebook friends um, posted a, about a story in, coming out of India that there was a young girl who had been assaulted and she and her family had come forward and pressed charges against the man and the judge, in his sentence for the crime, demands that the rapist's son is going to marry the little girl, yes, right. and she's going to live with that family. Right. And so this is still going on. You know, this kind of, and that idea that um, rape victims should be married. It's just, it's, it, it the, boggles my mind. That's the remedy. That yeah. They, yeah. But I, that happened you, in Morocco, and a woman, a, a girl uh -huh. who had that happen to her, Ate rat poison mm -hmm. and killed herself. I think, than yeah, it's just, and, and that, you know, if you read Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo, there's a situation where somebody takes the rat poison too. So it's, ugh. yeah. Um, in the book that I'm writing after this one, um, there was a very difficult period after, after India became free. What happened is the British divided the land and gave some to be Pakistan and some to be India. And for some reason, they gave East Bengal to be part of Pakistan, even though Pakistan was really far to the west. So there was just this little blip over on one side that was also Pakistan that, was, that had been part of Bengal. And there was a lot of violence between the two groups um, because the people, Hindus who got trapped in the east were pressured to come west to India, but on the way out, they'd get killed and this and that, and they'd have their they wanted to stay, they might have their buildings burned and all kinds of nonsense. And then the Muslims in India were facing violence from now it was a Hindu-majority country. Um, and one of the ways that they were able to um, really stick it to the enemy was by kidnapping the women and making them wives. Mm. So, for example, a Hindu girl that might be living close to that border might, might be kidnapped 
and live the rest of her life in Pakistan in a village. And so that is an issue that I'm writing about in my next book. But don't get too depressed because it's a Sujata Massey book and they never get too violent. And they, you know, but I'm really interested in personal stories and how people make their way out of hardships. And one of the things I loved in your book, Allison, I'm not going to do spoilers, I'm not going to do spoilers, <laughs> is that you were able to show humanity even among people in the gang. Mm -hmm. And people who decided to make choices that you know were hard choices that they might not survive the choice, but they thought it was the right thing and mm -hmm. really improbable. So, you know, I think that was, you must think, do you think a lot about when you're doing these things and it kind of looks black and white like a gang is bad or, you know, for me, I have this scene with riots where, you know, people are rioting and it's very tough. I mean, do you think consciously that you, you want to personalize or that you, about whether you're being fair? Well, I, I think it's just part of where I was as a prosecutor. For a while, the defendant would be this mysterious guy, sort of. Like, you never get to talk to him. As a prosecutor, you're banned from talking to him. But you want to know, like, what makes him tick and what's he all about without ever talking to him because you can't. So you investigate. You talk to everybody who's met him. You talk to his family members and his mom, if, if she'll talk to you, and, you know, his friends and people who've been around him, his probation officer. You try to find out where he's coming from. And then after you get a conviction, there's this pre-sentence report that talks about what his life was like growing up. And when you read that pre-sentence report, very often you're like, oh, okay, I see where this guy is coming from. From Very often they had terrible, these, these defendants who've done terrible things as adults have had terrible, terrible childhoods and have had just horrific things happen to them. It doesn't mean they shouldn't go to jail, but you can understand where they're coming from. And you see that cycle so often. And, and you, you hope that if... If we're doing our jobs right in the criminal justice system, you hope that what you're doing is stopping maybe some of these cycles. But where you see a, a man who was a child who was abused, abuse a child. And you hope that that child isn't in 18 years going to grow up to be yeah. the man who's abusing somebody mm -hmm. else. But there is definitely this feeling of empathy for these people who are in these tragic situations, nobody wants to grow up to be the bad guy. It's very hard to get to someone to plead guilty to a sex crime because nobody wants to be a sex offender mm -hmm. in their own head, in jail, to their family. So uh, nobody wants to be that bad guy. And, uh, but you can understand where that comes from. And I think a lot of these guys struggle with that. They want to be a good guy. They don't know how. It's so tempting to be a bad guy. There's so many fun things about being a bad guy. But I'm wondering, Sujata, with yours, you managed to both write these really lush uh, scenes with these very intricate characters and describe it, especially in the Sleeping Dictionary, this great historical detail of this time period, while also keeping this suspense and mystery going at this kind mm -hmm. of page-turning, uh, you-can't-put-it-down pace. So I'm wondering, how do you manage to work that balance out where you have both this kind of literary, you know, lush, beautiful prose going and the mystery. Well, thank you, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I think that like being a mystery writer is really good training because you have to have suspense. And I mean, I've been spoiled by reading so much mystery that I demand a story. Like I get really bored in books that are just about a place or 
nothing really happens in the book, um, you know, and you know those books are published. <laughs> They've been published for a long time, and when I was growing up, that was what we were being trained to write. Um, it's just these very small, perfect, you know, the writings about, the, the books about the writing, not about the story. Mm-hmm. So I really, I think that I, I had in mind a story. Actually, my story was much, much longer. This book is like... Um, Oh my gosh, it was, it, it's about three quarters or a little bit less than three quarters of what it was originally. And people forced me to, to, it was just too long a book to publish. I mean, it was like as long as, you know, practically as long as the Bible. And it just, you would not want to read, I would want to read that, but because I've been working on it and figuring my way out for five years writing that book. But I had to shrink it down. So that was, and so I feel like I had some good editorial guidance to, to do that because my inclination was to go really long. And now I'm trying so hard to write a book that's like 350 pages. And, or, you know, I'm trying, you know, I haven't gotten that far in it. I'm about 30 pages. So, so who do you, so far I've written who do you talk to? Who do you allow to tell you these are the 100 pages that need to be cut? Who's your sounding oh, board? Well, my agent is really terrific. Mm-hmm. And she's one of those people that you would go through and read the book 30 times over, and each time she would find new things. I can't believe that she did that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had That's great, you know, we're at the same publisher, Simon & Schuster. I'm with a line called Gallery that does um, trade fiction, trade paperback fiction. And I think my editor was great, and one of the things I really appreciated was she let me keep in the politics and keep in those kinds of details Mm -hmm. because they were interesting to her. And and if she didn't understand something, she wanted to know more about it. Mm -hmm. So that was really fortunate that she did that because, you know, along the way that other people that looked at the book, I mean, there there were people that were interested in, say, a certain section and wanted me to just do the book at the certain section and a certain age. And I really wanted to bring the character and um, the story through freedom arriving. Mm-hmm. I feel like to not have it arrive would be kind of, um, I, I think that would be a letdown. Yeah, good. I think that's a good mm-hmm. choice to have, yeah. to have that happiness at the end. For me, that person is Mike, my husband. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's he is brilliant, and it's not always easy on the marriage, but it's good for the book. So yeah. we do it over and over again. Yes. One of the things that I was wondering when I finished your book was, were you at all afraid to write about a real gang? Like, why didn't you fictionalize your gang? Could they, you know, I whatever, you know, what what went into <laughs> my your mom asked to me that, that too. <laughs> And this will tell you a little bit about where my head is right now. I, I think if they do something, I hope it's really a spectacularly violent thing that makes a lot of press, and I sell a lot of books because of it. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not actually that worried. I, you know, th- this seems writing about a fictional gang member seems much more far removed than actually um, saying this is the guy who did it, and please put mm-hmm. him in jail, and, and looking at them and pointing and. Uh, you, that's what you have to do. You have to look in their mm-hmm. eyes. You have to point. And uh, although there's a debate about that point or hand or whatever, but you, they don't take kindly to it. However you do, whichever shape your hand is in, they're not uh, appreciating that. So uh, writing about it seems a little safer. Yeah. I, well, some of my friends, you know, mm-hmm. Stephanie Gallagher, who's now a judge here, she was threatened by a gang that she was um, prosecuting. And th- so I took a lot of these stories. I took Stephanie's story and put it in the book, just the, the incredible courage that it takes when you're threatened 
as a prosecutor to keep going. And uh, w one reviewer, I forget which reviewer it was, thought it was like kind of selfish of Anna to keep going even when she was threatened. But I've never, I don't know, the prosecutors I know are just incredibly, this is what their job, you know, we don't leave. We're, that's what kind of makes us different from like El Salvador where MS-13 came from. You know, when, yeah. when you're threatened, you keep going and mm -hmm. the marshals provide you protection and it's scary and you worry, but that's your job and, and you do it. So I, I tried to take the courage that I saw from my friends who had had that sort of thing happen in the middle of gang cases and, and take that and give it to Anna and speak of the devil. Thank you. Thank you both very much. I would like to open up to some yeah, questions from idea. the audience. Mm -hmm. um, when you talk about how the charges are so often dropped and, and the victim goes back to the abuser, I mean, is, is there, or, I mean, it, it just cries out for the need for some kind of counseling or, or mediation mm -hmm. to allow the abuser to turn into a decent person, you know? And not that that's an easy thing to do, but it seems like, in a way, the real solution, not that, not that you know, prosecutors are there for needed, but um, also, thank you, but also to um, put an end to the cycle of violence, you know, counseling for the children as well. And, you know, I'd hate to hear you say, well, there aren't any very effective services that do that, but I would hope that at least in some communities there are. Well, I think that's a great point, and actually prosecutors and prosecuting offices these days think that too. And they, there's actually a saying that the, in these special victims' crimes, it's where law meets social work. So there's, here I am as a prosecutor, and I or was a prosecutor, and I would bring these cases, but I'm talking about one incident. There's a fist, there's a cheekbone, they meet, and that's a criminal charge, and we bring that. But if we don't address the underlying problems, that's just going to come again next year, that, that same sort of incident. So we work really closely with victims' advocates who are there helping victims. In almost all the domestic violence cases, if a conviction is obtained, the uh, abuser has to go through anger management training or um, like domestic violence intervention program, which also teaches like some life skills and stuff. But it's, it is very important, and it is something that uh, most jurisdictions are taking into account these days. Does it work in your experience? You know, in my experience, I didn't see when it worked. I only saw when it didn't work. If it hit my desk, it hadn't worked. Yeah. So. Oh, go ahead. Hi, Sajada. As a fan of your um, Ray Shimura mystery series, one thing I really liked about them was that on top of the mystery, there was a lot of cultural information about Japan that I felt I learned. This time, the book is described as historical fiction with suspense. So can you speak to what that was like, how you had to reset the dial from a mystery with lots of history to historical fiction with suspense? How did you shift the balance and, and yeah, manage to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that I, I had always had this corner of me that loves these big sweeping historicals like especially the work of Amy Tan and Lisa C and these books where you learn something about a historical period of a country through through people and especially through households women and children and the people they love so I set out knowing I wanted to do that and I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I don't have to do a murder puzzle, which you always have to do in a mystery, is come up with some kind of a tr 
tricky death that a smart reader could kind of be maybe angling toward but not see. And I knew the puzzle would be gone. And, and that was sort of a little bit liberating for me. But then all the stuff started creeping in that I wanted to do. Like, um, I learned, I said, oh, I've got it. If I'm doing it about the freedom fighting movement, wouldn't it be interesting to have a spy situation? Because I love doing spy stuff in the Ray Shimura books. Um, whether or not it's very correct, I don't know. But um, then I discovered in my research that there really was a secret spy unit within the Indian civil service of um, you know, these officers who spied on the freedom fighters and students and communists and just kind of like a little bit what was going on here in the 50s that was going on in India, in, especially in Bengal since the 20s. And when I realized that this was going on and I went to the British Library and I was able to access these old documents and these old telegrams showing this espionage and I got really excited. So I knew that I, I was going to put this espionage in and then part of the storyline becomes can my character stay one step ahead of this unit? Uh, this really is a question for both of you authors. Um, in the Anna Curtis things, there's at least one um, protagonist who can have a sort of a, a life story. And part of that I'm wondering, you know, will things be developing? Will each book keep on having some progressive changes in the life um, of Anna Curtis as she does her work? But also, I don't know in the past in, in these other books in India, if, um, if there has been any continuity or if in future books there would be some continuity where you can develop a particular character. Um, should I start Go with ahead. that? Yeah. yeah, I thought about it and I lit on this idea that it would be interesting to have the books because I'm going in through these periods of um, 20th century Indian history to have different books narrated by women in the same family. And that way you're in a different time period, but your heroine can still be young and vibrant and have a love story if she wants one. Um, but she can also go visit her grandmother if she needs advice, you know? And you'll be so happy to see that her grandmother is alive and that she's still reading and she's wonderful. And, you know, she might have an insight um, that the younger person might need. And there has been, unfortunately, such a history of violence in India in this century, this last century, and in ju just different wars, different conflicts, but um, they all are things that affect families and women, and they're all are roles that women can play in, in these conflicts. So I feel like I've got a lot of material, and I'm just getting started. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant, having the, her grow up and be the grandma, and we can visit with her yes. afterwards. That, that, that's great. I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, yes, I have Anna Curtis, Uncle Jerry. Um, I, and she'll be, the next, she'll be in the fourth and fifth books. And after that, we'll just see. I have a lot of ideas for standalones, and it's also been suggested that I spin off some of the characters and give them their own series. So I think uh, the most likely one for that would be the FBI agent, Samantha Randazzo, and her, uh, her delightful cook brother who runs the restaurant in D.C., the Italian restaurant. And I could include, like, all of the Leota family recipes. That would be fun. <laughs> 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 uh, 
but I, I also have a deep affection for Detective Tavon McGee, who uh, it tends to be a lot of people's favorite character, so maybe he would be fun to spin off too. But right now, head down, working on four and five for Anna Curtis. Thank you. Uh, I actually have one question for each of you, if I may. Um, you said that earlier in the evening, you said that if the woman decides not to press charges, then you have to kind of weigh um, what she wants to do with what you foresee happening. Can you do anything other than drop the charges legally? Yes. Yes, and in fact, this is something that I would have to explain to the victims all the time, which is that I was not their lawyer. I was a lawyer for the United States. I would stand up and say, Allison Leota for the United States. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the interest of the United States is not the same as the interest of the victim in the case. Sometimes the interest of the United States is to convict the guy, even if she doesn't want him convicted. And not always. It's very hard to make a case if you don't have a cooperative witness, a victim witness, but sometimes you can. Sometimes you can make the case, and very often I think we should. And what surprised me, too, was sometimes I would get those convictions where a victim had said, please, Ms. Leoto, drop the charges. I don't want this man convicted. And I would get the conviction, and afterwards she would come up and say, thank you. He really, he really needed that. Um, he, he needed to learn from that. She just didn't want to be the instrument of him going to jail. Um, and Sujata, for you, it, it sounds like the women in your book have a lot of power, more power than I would have thought, for example, that an American woman would have had in the 30s. Um, and I just wonder, were Indian women more equal well, to men? yes and no. My character is very, starts out very powerless, and I think she, she, does, she never feels powerful, my character. Um, she never really realizes all that she, she has done and can do. But um, one of the things that, like I, I referred back to the education and the British education system coming in, and all these excellent schools, not just for, for boys but for girls, really empowered women. And also I think that the feeling in, in India that, oh, you know, it's not really a good idea for a man to be, you know, a male doctor to be examining our our daughter, or, you know, she, we'd rather have a woman math teacher. So I think that you, are, you see a growth in these fields with women, like in medicine and in science and math, that was really positive. I remember going as a young woman to India, um, one of my trips in the 80s, and meeting, it seemed like every woman I met was a physicist or a math professor, and I felt like a moron. You know, I was just a newspaper reporter. And it was just, I, I was like, why are there so many more women in these jobs than they are here in the U.S.? And I, I could be wrong. It could have been just a skewed population because my dad was taking me around the universities, but it seemed really um, very um, positive to me that way. Hi. Well, this one's for Sujata. Um, well, you you keep talking about how you had to cut the book from 800 to 500 pages, and it seems to have an excellent shot at being a very popular book. Um, you know, when when most of the people who want to read it have gotten it, 
would you think about publishing a director's cut, so to speak? Oh. You know, or, oh or even gosh. just put on our website. Here's the other 300 that pages. That is so that would crazy. Say, that is such a crazy idea, but maybe I should do say, it. Oh, maybe I should boy, do it. you know, more. Yeah, more. you get more. Well, <laughs> like one, I'll just, like one of the sections was my character would work with children. Like she worked as an ayah for a section. With This didn't go in the book. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing with that is I'm taking that whole concept and that whole horrible family she worked for and making a novella out of it. Mm-hmm. So, and I'll probably, that might just be on the internet. Um, but it's got, a, it's got like a different, different, uh, the girl is different at, in it. You know, it obviously would just be way too confusing. And mm-hmm. um, there's another story that I write about. It's like a World War II story because the story spans, um, the book spans that. So, and I, I really love that portion. And I don't know that I'll be able to bring that to life, but maybe that would go in the director's cut. Yeah, yeah. If, I do it, it. if it, you it, have a director's oh. cut. If it is, you could be the director. <laughs> it, it reminds if you have a director's me, cut, sorry. I want to have a bloopers reel. <laughs> it reminds me of, of like Bruckner symphonies where people said, to them, oh, you didn't really want to compose that. Come on, you want to change it. Or, or Verdi operas, the Paris version and the Italian version, you know. Yeah, well, I actually thought about doing that with one of my books, Shimura Trouble, because I was made to shorten that book in a way that, and I got comments from readers on the internet that they, they thought the book was too short and it wasn't quite right. It was like, well, you know, it was that change in <laughs> publisher, unfortunately. And I... I didn't, you know, stick to my guns. You know, maybe I could have. <laughs> okay. Yes. Run for Allison. Um, you mentioned uh, drawing on your experience as a prosecutor in each of the three books, giving it a different focus. Early in my career as a psychologist, I worked with a lot of victims of sex crimes and and also perpetrators. And the crime that you haven't talked about is incest. And I wonder if in the fourth or the fifth book, you know, that might, uh, you know, that might come to the fore um, as a possible, I mean, from my experience, that, that triangle of the daughter, the mother, and the often stepfather, uh, I think is rich for, a, for, for literature. Yes, although I'm not sure I could do any better than um, that novel by Sapphire, Precious. Or, it, that was a, an amazing novel about that, and um, the, a very depressing but amazing movie, too. I think it's called Precious, right? Um, so that would be tackling something that has already been done. But yes, that, you're right, that, is, that happens so often, and the challenge in that one is such a sad and kind of heart-wrenching challenge I don't know if I could... So when you pick a book, you have to pick something you're going to live with for a year. That is what you go into day in and day out. You go into this room, you shut the door, and you're in this world for a year. And the interaction that happens so often in in those cases, the interaction I saw over and over was there'd be some girl, 11, 12, younger girl, and mom would have a new husband, and stepdad would sexually abuse the girl. And mom would often see it, she would uh, be a witness to it and at first would be outraged and then would flip and be testifying on behalf of the stepfather and would be enraged that her daughter um, could bring down the family by testifying against her abuser. And that was just such a very dark interaction. I'm not sure I'm up for living in that for a year, but I commend you for trying to help sort it out and make, help people heal afterwards. 
Thank you. Uh, we are selling copies of Allison and Sue Jada's books in the back. I want to thank everyone for coming yes, on a, on a weeknight, much. a busy weeknight, this early and with the Baltimore traffic. I want to thank you so much for coming. It's yes. really wonderful to see. And I, it's so neat to have a mixed crowd, yes, isn't it? Yeah, I love to do things with you. Yes, it really is fun. <laughs> I, I have people who came all the way from New York, so thank oh, wow. you. And, and yes, it's really great to, to be here and see everybody. Thank you very much for coming tonight. Thank you.